0: Uh, For a number of you, probably this is your first chance to meet our bishop, Todd Hunter, so I just wanted to say a brief word. Uh, It was with brilliance, I think, that uh, our founding pastors, Bill and Linda, led this parish into a relatively new uh, entity, the Churches for the Sake of Others diocese, about eight or so years ago. Uh, And ever since, Todd Hunter has been our bishop. Uh, I so appreciate Todd's heart for church planting, for mission, for engaging the issues and the people of our time, and doing it all very respectfully. Uh, He talks often about the formation of the soul and also about justice, and uh, I'm so grateful. I could go on and on, which I won't, but I think the most important thing I could tell you about Todd is what his wife Debbie said about him once, which is, Todd's the Person most like Jesus of anybody out there. So bless you, Todd, and welcome to church. How am I supposed to live up to that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> My wife's optimistic. What can I say? <laughs> it's very nice uh, to be back at Savior again, truly. Um, and I don't think I've ever done a confirmation on Ascension Sunday. And so if you know much about the church calendar, you know that there's a nice uh, synergy there. As Ascension is, you know, the the day that we memorialize Jesus ascending into heaven. And if we're thinking about confirmation, we might think of what he said to his disciples. It's better that I go away. Now, sentences like that one, not just that one, but a sentence like that one always makes me want to say to myself and to others, Do we hold Jesus in our minds as smart? Right? It would be so easy to lapse into, well, he's holy, um, perfect sacrifice, son of God. We might be able to talk about some proper Christology. That's just a a big fancy word for right thinking about the Christ. But what if if we humanize this just a bit? where his best friends have been hearing him for a few weeks now going on about maybe disappearing from them. And they don't get it. And they are really fearful of being abandoned. I mean, in modern day language, we might say they had abandonment issues. They were fearful of being like orphaned. And so it comes to this really pivotal moment where Jesus says, yes, I'm leaving. I am going to the Father. But it's better for you that I go away. Now, if you think Jesus is smart, if you think he didn't just say random religious things that we put on plaques to hang in our kitchen, you know, like, I'm the bread of life. Oh, let's put that on the wall, honey. That's uh Like, if you think Jesus said things that in any way corresponded to reality, if they were in any way meaningful, then what does he possibly mean with this apparently crazy sentence that it's better for you that I ascend, that it's better for you that I go away? Well, he answers his own question. Or if I go, I will send you the Holy Spirit. Now, what Jesus is imagining I know this is crazy. We can't really imagine this, but just for the sake of discussion. Let's say, like, you here, you are the 12. You're like my first best friends, and I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus. Debbie said I was close. So So what's in mind here is that Jesus mediated himself to his first friends through his body. Touch, sharing a meal together. He was with his first friends, and they with him through his body. But Jesus says, when I go, I will send you another comforter. In the Greek text, that's a word, comforter is paraclete. And the best Greek scholars in the world have had fun with that word for generations. I mean, I don't know anybody who thinks we have an adequate, perfect translation for that. Uh, My favorite translation of it is the continuator. Because that implies that he, the other things, like he'll be with you, he'll comfort you. But without my, what Jesus is assuring them, right? Because what's their fear of being abandoned and orphaned? So his answer is not some theological jargon so that we could you know, start a new category of theology called pneumatology, you know, the study of the spirit. No, obviously he's saying something that has reference to that moment and reference to his friends. And he says, no, don't worry another comforter will come to you. And then where he goes on to say, in the same way that I've taught you, the spirit will teach you and the spirit will bring to remembrance all that I've taught you. And he'll help you um, when you don't know what to say. He'll show you what to say. When when the church doesn't know what to do, you'll be given gifts of the Spirit, like discernment and wisdom and knowledge and prophecy, which just simply means to see something from God's angle or from like a God's eye point of view. So Jesus is assuring them. Now, if you bring all that into the context of a confirmation service, or into the context of the historical practice of confirmation, we're onto something that would technically be called like covenantal. And we don't need to get into that just to say, covenant is just a a really simple arrangement of commitments between parties. And in this case, it's between God and his people. And so all of you were baptized as infants. And your parents and the church made promises on your behalf. And that began a lowercase c covenant, which was meant to bring you to this moment where with your own mind and hearts, you could say, yes, I want to fulfill the promises given me at my baptism. And what the church has done for eons is to say the way that happens is through an impartation of the Spirit. So you might not know it, but tonight, you're at a charismatic service, <laughs> where what? <laughs> All right, here we go. Um, where literally what's, in, what's envisioned here, and what I have in my heart, and that I, I hope you guys do, is that when I lay hands on you, yes, it's symbolic, and my clothes are symbolic, and my cross is symbolic, and there's a lot of symbolism here, and that's fine. But going beyond that symbolism, my intention is that you would genuinely be filled with the Spirit, that you might live out the vows you're about to make. And if you intend to receive the Spirit, you will receive Him. Now, what our readings alert us to tonight is that that the person and work of the Spirit is not marginal to the church. And the Holy Spirit can never be reduced to like a religious consumer decision, you know, that says, like, well, really, I'm Presbyterian, but I guess I'll take a little of the Spirit, as if God's impressed. Oh, well, thank you. You Reasonable Presbyterians are accepting me, you know, like, um, you know, like, you know, God would be impressed by that. Or like, well, really, I'm Anglican, and I kind of like liturgy, but I guess I'll be open to the Spirit. Well, you know, when we say stuff like that, what we typically have in the back of our mind is denominations. The assemblies of God, vineyard churches, four square churches, or we think of crazy Pentecostals, you know, quote unquote crazy Pentecostals or charismatics that we see on TV. And I just want to remind you that when I use those two words, Holy Spirit, we are talking about God Almighty. You don't say to God Almighty, oh, I'm open, as if he's going to be impressed. Oh, I thank you for granting that I have some plausibility. You know, I mean, like, God is, what God wants us to be hungered for and desired. This is why from Augustine to James K.A. Smith, you have people writing about our affections and our desires, the state of our will, the things that we really want. You know, to put it in those famous Augustine terms, you are what you love. And so everybody look at me here. I know that in churches like this, Lots of us have come out of churches that had excess related to the Holy, what was purportedly the Holy Spirit. And you've seen prophecy abused. Maybe you've seen other gifts of the Spirit abused. Maybe you've just seen sort of crazy church services that you can't relate to. Okay, I get it. I really do. I have genuine empathy. I was president of Vineyard Churches. Nobody in this room has seen more of the good, bad, and the ugly of the Holy Spirit than me. <laughs> Seriously, it wouldn't even be close. I, I get it. And I have genuine empathy. And I have empathy for those who who read this passage in Acts and go, what the heck? Like a mighty rushing wind. Did like the did the Venetian blinds shake? Did did, did it knock out the Wi-Fi? You know? <laughs> what does a mighty rushing wind do to Bluetooth? You know? What are cloven tongues of fire? I honestly get modern people reading that and just sort of shrugging their shoulders and go, I don't know. I don't know what the heck that means to me in an age of Google telling me to, where to go in my car. Yeah. Or I get people even reading the gifts passages, you know, in First Corinthians and Romans and Ephesians and again just shrugging their shoulders and going, I don't know. I don't know what to think about that. What's a word of knowledge? What's a, what's a word of wisdom? I totally get all that. But here's <laughs> what I need you to hear. The Holy Spirit being Almighty God, is as grieved by being ignored as he is by excess. The answer to wrong use can never be no use. The answer to excess is proper, ongoing, conversational, really rich, deep, but humble interaction with the third person of Almighty God. Why? because some Pentecostal said that on TV said that was right? No, Jesus, who you just told me you think is smart, said that it was better that he go away. Because if he went, the Spirit would come. And in the way that Jesus mediated his divinity to his first followers and to crowds of people through his body, what Jesus was envisioning is now this global church of, I forget what it is, 2.7 billion people or something, that still has the presence of God with them. They've not been abandoned or orphaned. The presence of God is with them through the Spirit. And as I said, this is not marginal. This is central. This is why our text says, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. Don't go anywhere until you have received the promise of the Father. Well, why? Why wait? And it's simply this. Like if, if, if this were a book and we were doing a pull quote, pull quote, here's the pull quote. Because the purposes of God in your life require a power suitable to those intentions. If this is a story merely about going to heaven when we died because Jesus paid for our sins, okay, what's the, what's the room for the spirit there? Nothing. Nothing. And this is why for so many Christian imaginations, not, there's not really much imaginative room for the Spirit because we think the Christian story is essentially God's mad at us because we did bad things, and he fixed it through Jesus, period, end of story. But what if it's something more like this? What if, what if the purposes of God for humanity go all the way back to the garden where he said, look at this amazing new creation. Come work with me in it. Come be my co-regents. Come, he literally says, rule now, I know we live in a day where people are afraid of power. I get it. But we've got to deal with the text. The text says, come rule with me. Come work with me in creation. And then he calls Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Why? Because you're going to bless the whole earth. And then you fast forward to John the Baptist and what he says about the coming of Jesus and what that's going to mean, and Jesus' own explanations of himself. And then his explanation that what will actually make this just go whoosh through the whole earth so that literally billions of people are connected to God, that is through the person and work of the Spirit. And so that the, per- so that the church can be led and filled and given gifts and given fruit, given authority. That's a major idea in the synoptic Gospels. Now, again, I, I know that we live in a day where we're worried about authority and power and all that, and rightfully so in many cases. But again, the view of the Bible is you are given, the Greek terms, "authoutain." You've been authorized, commissioned to work on God's behalf. Well, how do you do that? You don't want to do it on your own. You do it through the Spirit. And you've been given power, dunamis, capacity to be God's people. How? Through the person and work of the Spirit. Whenever I think about this, I think of that lovely passage in Psalm 8, where the psalmist says, Lord, what are humans? remember this passage, that you're even mindful of them, that you think of them at all. You know, we seem so small compared to the stars. I remember one time we were moving from Southern California to Boise, and either we stopped or something, we had a problem, I don't remember. I just remember getting out of the U-Haul truck in like in the middle of nowhere in the desert. And you know, I'm from Southern California, so we don't see stars. Seriously, they're, they're hidden by all the lights. And in the middle of that desert, I looked up, and saw more stars than I've ever seen in my life. And I remember actually almost feeling a little dizzy, like it was disorienting. And the psalmist is going through something like that, and he says, given the cosmos, and given the rate of the expansion of the cosmos, of course the psalmist wouldn't have known that, but we now know, what are humans? And God answers, you're my cooperative friends. You're created to bring goodness to the earth. How? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. So in our passage in Acts, what we're invited to see tonight is this is the moment where the presence of Jesus with the disciples is translated into the personal power of Jesus in the disciples. And this is now the mode and means by which God is putting his power and authority into operation in his people As a new world is being born. So come on, I just want you to think about this with me tonight. This isn't something like, honey, let's visit the local Pentecostal church. Just think of the sort of weightiness of that, weightlessness of that, versus the the strength and the, the solidness of a new world is being born. That's what you guys are being invited into. And all of us tonight who want to be, are invited into being filled afresh with the Spirit. As I lay hands on confirmands, if you desire yourself to be filled with the Spirit tonight, you can just sit there and pray, and I guarantee you, if you want it, you will have it. If you want me or anybody else to pray for you afterwards, I'm happy to. But again, this is central to everything God's doing. I mean, the biblical work of the Spirit is awesome. Creation, supervising history, revealing God's truth, drawing people to Jesus teaching us the way of Jesus. Think of the beauty of of Romans 5.5, that it's the Spirit who reveals the love of God to our hearts. So, So if you're here tonight in that place where maybe you've been hurt by charismatic Christianity, but you treasure knowing that God loves you, that same thing that you think hurt you is the person who lets you know that God loves you. So this new world is marked by the joy of the Spirit-filled life. What's in view here is that our lives would be animated by, energized by, empowered by, to, to make up a word, and gifted, and fruited, that this would be the action of the Spirit loosed in the church. And the disciples of Jesus, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, would be commissioned and equipped to begin the work of Jesus in the world the further inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Can you feel the narrative in that? John says, hey, someone's coming who's far better than I. He's gonna immerse you in the kingdom. And now Jesus says, hey, this kingdom work that you've seen embodied, demonstrated, and announced by me, this is now gonna carry on in the global people of God through the Spirit. He's gonna keep doing for you what I've done So then being filled with the Spirit, it's not propositional. It's not like a bit of doctrine. It's meant to be something that we know by experience. So you may have some theological questions about the person and work of the Spirit. Like, like, when are you filled with the Spirit? Is it conversion or a second time? Or what's the mark of being filled with the Spirit? Are the, are the historic Pentecostals right that it's, it's evidenced by speaking in tongues? Or are more sort of modern third-wave evangelicals right that it doesn't necessarily have to be that? Okay, I get all that. And all of us can have open questions about that. But here's the one thing that no one in this room should be uncertain about. Is my life inspired by the Spirit? As promised by the Father and taught by Jesus. I'll end with this beautiful picture that comes from Eugene Peterson's book called Eat This Book. And in there, Eugene says, everyone recognizes the difference between an accurate but wooden performance of, say, Mozart's violin concerto number no. one. So, like, picture you know your typical maybe junior high, you know, cello student who's good. He or she plays in tune. They know their instrument, they play in time, it's fine. But Peterson says that's a very different thing than a virtuoso performance by Yitzhak Perlman. Well, why? What's the difference? Peterson says Perlman's performance is not distinguished merely by his technical skill in reproducing what Mozart composed. No, Eugene says, Perlman wondrously enters into and conveys the spirit and the energy and the life of the score. Here is your score. It's one thing to have an accurate, even maybe knowing the original language, understanding. It's another thing to wondrously enter into and have a life shaped by this and animated by the Spirit. That's the invitation of our story. It has nothing to do with the kind of excesses that have hurt probably every one of us in this room, hurt our feelings and discouraged us. Jesus, when he wants to assure his first friends in Luke 11 says, look, here's how it works. If you know know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your Father in heaven give, what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask. And that's what we turn to now. To turn in this confirmation way to asking that these young confirmants would be filled with the Spirit. Amen.